Welcome to the Apawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. We've got a bit of a shortened service this morning. Um, so we're going to get straight into it. Who was here? Who wasn't here last week? Who missed out on the sermon last week? Sorry that it's not online. <laughs> I did tell everybody that it'd be online, but it's not. So <laughs> we'll get that remedied soon. But just to give you a recap, we are heading into the book of Haggai. We did chapter one last week, just a brief overview about uh, Haggai's word to the people of Israel. But I want to give you a quick feedback about what we did. Uh, Last week we talked about Israel. Now, who is Israel? Jacob, Jacob, right? A lot of us think of Israel as being a nation. But first and foremost, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. So a lot of the times when we read in the Old Testament, the promises to Israel, people assume that's the promises to the nation of Israel. But the reality is, a lot of it is just to Israel. Jacob himself. Jacob himself. So the promises to Jacob and to his seed, which we interpret as being his sons, 12 of them, and the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, when it came to dividing the land, when they got to the promised land, I was trying to explain last week, not very successfully, that uh, the Levites don't get a plot of land because they are priests. So do pastors today get a plot of land? Oh, no. I'm going to have to sell mine pretty quick. Um, so the Levites didn't get a plot of land. So Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, they got it. Um, Joseph being the beloved of Jacob or Israel, he got two lots instead of everybody else who got just one. And so there it is, the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes at their height. Um, and that's what it looked like. Now, for those of you who might... Um, understand a bit of geography. I'm not sure if this is going to work. No, it doesn't, but that's fine. Um, Up on the top there, where it says Arameans, that's where Syria is today. And if you go down a bit, there's a big body of water right next to the word Basan. That's the Sea of Galilee. And right where you see the word Basan, the B, that's the Golan Heights. Those of you who are into today's politics and a lot of the fighting that's going on, the Golan Heights was a big battleground for the uh, the uh, Israeli nation against the Syrians. Down the bottom here on the left is Philistia. And you see that? That's the uh, Gaza Strip that we know today. Um, and then you've got the West Bank, which is along where Jericho is there. But that's the 12 tribes of Israel. There was 12 of them, right? How many do we have today? Remember last week? How many do we have today? Is Israel truly Israel today? Why not? Exactly. Okay, so, you know, when Israel came together, when they decided to call Israel Israel, they actually had quite a bit of debate over it because they knew it's not really Israel. Because you see, Judah down the bottom here, well, if you remember reading uh, the book of Judges, at the end of the book of Judges, Benjamin, uh, the tribe of Benjamin, they have a little bit of a, uh, 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 well, they went a little ape. Yeah, to put it lightly, they went a little crazy. Um, the rest of the, the clans got upset at them and half decimated them. Ended up being a very small, small clan, and they came, became part of Judah. And Simeon down the bottom here, they too got dispersed, and basically Judah took over their territory. After King Solomon died, 
the two nations were split. They were split between the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. The Israel being the northern kingdoms, approximately nine tribes, and the southern kingdom being Judah, which was actually approximately three tribes, Judah, Benjamin, and Simeon. Even though, to this day, the Benjamites and the Simeonites were kind of lost. They've lost their identity. And that's why we call the Jews today Jews. Not because they're Israelites, but they're from Judah. With me? Okay? So, then uh, over time, the kingdom of Israel, they, they sinned against the Lord, and the Assyrians came down and wiped them completely. Gone. To this day, we don't know where they are. There's a few documentaries, if those of you are interested in National Geographic, who've tried to find out where these tribes have ended up and they've gone to Tibet and they've gone to Mongolia and they've, they've gone to Alaska to find them. And, you know, great, great history stuff. But, um, Does that mean that an individual Jew would know what uh, Most individual Jews today would be part of the tribe of Judah. But they may also be Simeonites or Benjamites without knowing it. Um, but the Jews today are technically Judeans or from Judah. They're not from the northern kingdom, even though, and we talked last week about the Samaritans, right? Well, the Samaritans, uh, who are they? Uh, a lot of the Samaritans, there's a group of about a thousand of them left today that live in Israel, in Mount Gerizim, they have their modern homes there, and they trace their ancestry back to Joseph. They believe themselves to be from the tribe of either Manasseh or Ephraim. And it's quite dubious, really, because the Assyrians, their policy was basically to annihilate a nation, not physically, but uh, spiritually in a sense, and they took them away and repopulated them other nations, and so they'd lose their actual identity. That was a way of stopping um, rebellion, in a sense, because they didn't have a national uh, identity they would lose the will to fight. And that's what they did with the uh, northern kingdom. But they did leave some, some of them behind, um, but not many. Now, a few years later, along comes the big empire, the Babylonians. Um, now, these guys were big. They were big enough to destroy Assyria. The Assyrians, up to that point, being the longest-running empire of all time, over a 1,000 years, very, very rough guys. Nobody really likes the Assyrians. But they wiped them out completely. And then they came down and took over the kingdom of Judah. And that's the Babylonian Empire. They destroyed Jerusalem through their king, Nebuchadnezzar, and took the the inhabitants of Jerusalem back to Babylon. Destroyed Solomon's temple, raised it to the ground, destroyed Jerusalem completely, and then they went off. Now, there were still some Jews left in the hillside country. They are the ones that then mixed with the peoples that had been repopulated into the northern kingdom from Assyria, and that's where we get the Samaritans. And that's why the Jews of Jesus' time kind of looked down on the Samaritans because they were, in a sense, a mixed race. They weren't pure. And so, yeah, they're not really... They're unclean, according to the Jew. So, that's a bit of the history behind the build-up to the book of Haggai. Now, uh, Haggai, around about 620 um, BC, uh, the Babylonian Empire had been overtaken by the Persian Empire. 
a guy by the name of Sirius. You read him in the Bible. There's a prophecy there in Isaiah chapter 45 that talks about Cyrus and what he did. He takes over the Babylonian Empire. He dies and his son becomes king and then he dies. And then the general takes over and his name's Darius. And he forces the Israel or the Jews basically back to Jerusalem. And the first lot of people in 620 AD get back to Jerusalem. And they're like, yay, we're back home. And that's where we picked up in chapter 1 of Haggai, where he just, the word of God comes to Haggai and he says, people, you've built your houses. And he calls it in, in, in Haggai chapter 1, he calls it your paneled homes. Your paneled homes being your wooden homes, which meant they would have put a lot of work into it. There's not much wood in Israel. So you would have had to go up into, into the hill country of Lebanon to get the wood and come down and build your homes, but you've left the house of the Lord a ruin. What are your priorities, people? And he hammers them. Hey, come on. What's more important, your own livelihood or my glory? And he makes a very interesting comment, the Lord. He says, you're going to do this for what reason? What was the reason God told him to do this, to rebuild his temple? To give him pleasure. And I shared a little bit last week about, you know, we really miss kings and queens in our society today. You know why? We have lost an idea of sovereignty. Um, I shared with you a bit about Henry IV. Anyone read that from Shakespeare? You know, Henry IV on the eve of battle, he goes amongst the people, dresses as a commoner, and all the people all talking about the war tomorrow that they'll go. And one commoner says, well, it's on the king's head. You know, all the people and all the, the arms and the legs that will be on the battlefield, that's on the king's head. What's it got to do with us? And, and Henry IV, you know, re, just responds, it's not on the king's head. How dare you say that? We fight because he is the king. It is on our head. And he stirs up the people and there's this stirring and they're all like, yeah, you're right. We do it for his pleasure. And it's the same with God. There doesn't have to be a reason for why we do things. We do it for his pleasure because it makes him happy. And that's difficult for us today to understand because we want a reason for everything, don't we? So anyway, how do the people react? They started building right away. They're like, you got it, Haggai. We stuffed. We've got to get this right. Let's get back to it. And they get to building. And this is where we come straight into chapter 2 of Haggai. It says this, On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Speak to... uh, I can never say this right. Zerubbabel. Is that right? Anyway... Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, ask them, who of you is left who saw the house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? The timing is very important, okay? It's the 21st day of the seventh month, which makes it on our calendar the 21st of October. It's the last day, the seventh day 
of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day-long Independence Day party. Okay, This was to celebrate Israel being saved by God, taken out of Egypt, and, um, and they just ate for seven days, partied the whole time. So you'd think this is a great time, right? You guys don't really have an independent... Do we have an independent... Oh, we have Waikato Day, don't we? Waitangi Day, Waikato Day. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Man, um, what, what, we don't have an Independence Day, but if you go to the States, Independence Day is just party and food and fireworks. And it's just incredible. And I can't imagine seven days of that. Apart from the fact I'll be full after three days. But the barbecues, it's just everyone's just together and enjoying it. They're all dressed in the red, white and blue. There's football games on and there's big rockets going up in the sky and exploding. It's just a fun time. I'd imagine that would have been the same case for the Feast of the Tabernacles. They wouldn't have had fireworks back then, obviously, but it would have been a time of celebration. But we have a problem. We have a problem. You see, there are some people in Israel that remember Solomon's temple from 50 years ago. There are people that remember how big, how glorious, how wonderful, how stupendous this marvel of the ancient world was. And you know, they're not happy with the new plans. They're not happy with what's going to be built. In fact, there's a few murmurings going around in the middle of all the celebration. There's a bit of discord going around. A few words to say, what? Don't they remember how big it was? What are they doing? This is not good. We used to have this. And we used to have that. And so amongst the celebration, there's not just discouragement, but there's discord. Ezra talks a little bit about it. This is what he says. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish a shouting of the sound of shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Huh. We got a problem. There are some people that aren't happy with what's happening. And you know what that the problem is? They've got the wrong perspective. They are thinking back to the glory days of when Israel under Solomon was a mighty nation. When the temple was huge and beautiful and people from all over the known world will come to it. The Queen of Sheba. Even the Egyptians noted Solomon's temple. The Babylonians said it took them five days with an army of 100,000 to knock it down. I mean, this was a beautiful, big temple. And now they see the foundations and some of the older folk are weeping. The younger ones don't know any different. They're happy. They don't know any different, but the older ones do. 
Ecclesiastes 7.10, Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Sometimes we drive through our lives with our eyes on the rearview mirror and not on the street ahead. What happens when you do that? You're going to crash and burn. And a lot of churches just keep looking at the glory days behind in the rearview mirror and forget. Uh, uh, one of the churches I was hired as a youth pastor many, many years ago told me back in the 70s, we had 100 people in our youth group. We want to get back to that. And I just kind of looked at him. I said, well, that, okay. You had 10 years of glory and 30 years trying to get back to those 10 years. Wow. Can you see why it's not growing? Do you know why Billy Graham doesn't do any more? Well, not because he's 90. <laughs> but do you know why stadiums filled with uh, these televangelists don't work anymore? People are different. Lives are different. Who would have ever believed that we would have cell phones today? I mean, seriously. I remember as a kid with a telephone and the little dialy thing, I, I used to be a little dyslexic when I was a kid and I'd always get stuck on the same number for four. Oh, no, hang up, four. No, I don't want four. You know, that little thing, you had to wait till it rolled around. Would you believe that just a few years later you'd be carrying a little thing about this big and you'd be talking on the phone with it? And how many people would have it? That televisions could be so flat. When I was a kid, it took four of us to carry our television. Those were the glory days. Yeah, they were. But it's different today. And we always have to keep our eyes focused forward where God's taking us. Where God's taking us. That's not to say it's bad to reminisce. I think back when I was a kid, there were some pretty cool times that I don't think I could ever experience with my kids because the times are so different. But I don't long for those days. I don't want those days to be like today. And that's what God's telling these people. Those of you, look at the temple. Who thinks this is not good enough? Who thinks that this is not worthy enough? I hear it in church a lot. And not just our church, every church. And most church leaders will tell you the same. We used to do it this way. Why can't we have it like we used to have it? Well, those days were the glory days. And we live in that past. You know, a power used to have, it used to be so big, they had to have two services here. It'd be full bottom and top, right? We remember those days. And we pine for those days, don't we? I want to see this place fill bottom and top. But I've got to work with what God's given us now. And I've got to look forward to what God's going to bring us. Not look back at what God has done. There's a problem in this. And the problem is actually fundamental. Proverbs 6.16 says this. 
There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Now, that's, that's Jewish talk. Uh, you know, it's wrong that they translate. I don't know why they do it that way. It's like Italians. Italians say the same thing. When we want to say there are seven things that are bad, the six are bad, but the seventh is worse, we say it like that as Italians. The Jews do the same when they talk. They say six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination. That means the seventh is just the worst. Okay? And this is what he says. Haughty eyes and a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies. And the worst one of all of those... One who sows discord among brothers. When we live in the past, you don't understand, but you sow discord for the future. When you live in the past and you oppose, impose that past on the future, you are sowing discord. You are sowing discord. The root issue, though, is simple. Sometimes we glorify the forms of church and not the functions of church. The function of the church is actually quite simple. We're called to reconcile people to God. Reconciliation is number one, the core of what the church is about. Reconciling people to God. We're also called to disciple. Now, I know discipling is not a good word for some of you who've lived through the 70s and 80s and were just bombarded with this word. But just take it a step back from it. Discipling really means just helping people grow spiritually in the Lord. Bring them to Christ, then grow them in Christ. You know, the Great Commission, what's the Great Commission say? Go out into the world and what? Make disciples. The great commitment. Jesus is la- he chooses his last words to tell us, go make disciples. Basic functions of the church. There's also worship, fellowship, you know, us hanging out together and being together, sharing a meal, caring. Caring is a very big part of the function of a church, to care for each other and to care for our community. I'd say these are subsets to the two main important things that we've been called to as a function of the church. But you know what we get really hung up about most of the time? It's the forms of the church. Style of worship, buildings, the Sunday service. These are forms. And these forms, people, change. The function never changes. The forms do. But we live sometimes by changing the functions, but keeping the forms. Churches split, not over the function of the church, but over the forms of the church, don't they? How many fights have you had with the style of worship? I've been a worship leader for 10 years, believe me. Whether you're in Australia, Italy, the US, New Zealand, worship is always an issue. There's fight, church split over, over the form, over the style. Buildings. I was part of a huge building project in a church a few years ago. And the senior pastor gave me the plans and said, you're in charge, Rob. And, you know, being the good Baptist that I am, I'm all about getting congregational involvement. And 
And so we, we set up teams. And I learned after that that you don't set up teams for stuff like this because they're just going to kill each other. We had a team for the colour of the carpet. And I am telling you, six months it took them to decide the colour of the carpets. People were hating each other at the end of it. There was fights and I had to go into the meeting and and mediate between them. And I thought to myself, never again. (laughs) Never again. (laughs) But it's funny, just over the colour of the carpet. The form becomes more important than the function. In fact, with the forms, we canonize them. We make them sacred. But we really do. When I first became a Christian, um, I, I got, I got, I had no idea about Christianity. And I got saved in Washington DC in a Pentecostal church where the preaching went for an hour non-stop. And I rarely sit through anything for an hour, but this guy totally had my attention. I gave my life to the Lord. He bought me an NIV student Bible and back to Rome I went, where I was living. Found a gorgeous little church where the preacher that morning was from Australia who had been one of the elders of this church. It was a small brethren church. And there I was discipled, I was supported, loved it. But there were some strange things about this church. Women all wore veils, every one of them. And the way the service was set up uh, was that they all had hymnals and you'd stand up and say, let's sing from hymnal number and everyone would then sing from that hymnal number. But the women never stood up. And then people would get up to pray. But only men could get up to pray, none of the women. And, you know, being a young Christian, okay, I guess that's what Christians do, right? Until one day, a young lady got up and prayed. And immediately, a quarter, or actually a third of the church, got up and left. It sent this little church into a spiral. The elders got up there, we need to call a meeting. We had a meeting that evening, and me being a young Christian, I've got to figure out what's going on, this is interesting. Went to the meeting, and they debated over what this woman had done. And I kept thinking to myself, what's wrong with what she did? She just prayed. I mean, oh, you can't do it publicly. The elders finally came to an agreement that what she did wasn't wrong. And those families never came back to the church. The forms were more important than the function. And from that day on, I started questioning everything in the church. I said, Hang on a sec. If you say it's okay, now why were we holding back on it up until then? What's more important to you in the church? The forms or the functions? That's, I'm not trying to minimize the style of worship. I'm not trying to minimize our Sunday service or our buildings or any of the forms. But you've got to understand, we should be fighting for reconciliation, bringing people to Christ. We should be fighting for discipling, growing people in Christ. We should be fighting to worship, to fellowship, to be caring and loving people because that is our function. The forms are supposed to help us do what we do, not drive it. Even what we do on a Sunday morning. Uh, Brethren Church in Sydney, the first time I preached... I got up, and I've always been, 
Most people call me rotten because I always push buttons. I don't push buttons, do I? I got into this church as an A-frame that, I've got to be honest with you, it looks just like the A-frame across the road, but smaller. South Hurstville Brethren Congregation. It was called South Hurstville Gospel Chapel. Preached there for the first time ever. And I thought, you know what? I need to change things around a bit. And the chairs were all facing forward. I changed them all around so they're all facing sideways. And I got to the side there and preached. I wasn't up on the stage. Man, boy, we had an elders meeting that night. (laughs) And they agreed that, no, he didn't really do anything wrong, but don't do it again. The forms are more important than the function. You know, I can't stress this more. And God, he's telling the Jews, guys, don't worry about what the temple looked like. Don't worry about what it was. Worry about now. Hey, you know what? It could be big, it could be small, wide, long. It doesn't matter. If I've ordained it, if I have called you to it, if this is what it is, take pleasure in it and just Just do it. That's it. That's all. He goes on to say, verses 4 to 5, But now, be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people. Of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I have covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So there's four things. The biggest one is straight out be strong. You know how many times he says it in those two verses? Take a look. Be strong, be strong, be strong. Be strong, you pastors. Be strong, you elders. Be strong, you people. Be strong. And then the next thing he shares with us is what? What does it say up there? Get to work. And there he goes. And work. Get to work. You've got a job to do. Go for it. Hey, anything wrong with that? Oh my goodness, when God gives the green light, I don't know about you guys, but I'm off like a rocket. You know, there's no, there can be no more strength in me to know that this is what God wants us to do. Man, go to it, get to work. Okay, you know what? You've had an earthquake. Yeah, you've been tired, you've been stressed, but be strong and get to work because now is the best time ever. It's not tomorrow, it's not yesterday, it's now. Get to work. And what else does he say? Huh? For I am with you. For I am with you. Oh man, dude, not only is he telling me to be strong and work, but he's making sure that I am with you, that he is with me. Remember what I told you last week, what that means to the Lord. What does that mean for I am with you? It's not like me coming up here and, and saying, hey, I'm with you. Good. Okay, I'm with you. 
Is that what it means? He's in you, but what more? What more? He's with me through trials. Keep going. Dig deeper. He's not just walking alongside me. He strengthens me. What else? Always. It's a good word, always. You know, when we talk about you are my all in all, you are my everything, he is, is. He's not just kind of detached, hey, I'm, I'm here with you, pat you on the back. He is in you, he is walking with you, he is lifting you up, he is giving you strength, you rely on him, you cannot go wrong, you have not enough strength, he'll give you the strength, you're feeling weary, he'll give you the rest, you feel fear. What's the next one he says? Huh? You feel fear? Do not fear, I am with you. It's not just a physical, hey Lord, (laughs) you're walking beside me. He is your all in all. He is everything. He is your fullness. And the more and more you learn to rely on him, the more you have no reason to fear, the stronger you will be, the work will get done, and you will know God is with you. Zechariah, who was a contemporary of Haggai, wrote this. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but what? But by my spirit. Hallelujah, right? Amen. And I say it like I said last week, don't tell me the minor prophets aren't fun. Full of a richness. And you know, there's the challenge, the challenge of kind of directing ourselves. What is our priority in life? Yeah, that's a challenge. Yeah, sometimes we put our forms of the church above the function of the church. Yeah, we're human and, and okay, you know, I like this colour and not that colour. I like to hear this kind of music and not that kind of music. Hey, you know what? That's okay too. But don't make a fight out of it. Instead, fight for what God wants you to be fighting for. Every once in a while, we kind of need a tune-up. Unless you own a really cool Mercedes, which probably doesn't need a tune-up very often. But I got a little Honda, and that needs a tune-up pretty often. (laughs) We need a tune-up. For some, it might be often. For others, it might not be that often. But we still need a tune-up. And that's just to realign our priorities with God, realign our, um, our energy with who God is. What am I going to fight for? I'm going to fight for the function of the church, not the form. I'll still have a say with the form, but I'm not going to fight over it. I'm going to fight for reconciliation. I want to see people coming to know God. People renewed in their relationship with the one God, our Father. I want to see reconciliation. I want to see discipleship happening, regardless of what you think of the word. I want to see people growing in Christ. I want to see people not just coming to Christ, but growing in Christ. And you see that growth happening. You know, people who we grow up and we see them up front here preaching or we see them up there playing or we see them out there evangelizing. We see the power of the Lord working in them. I don't know about you guys, but oh man, that brings a lot of strength to me. And that's 
our function. And we're to care, and we're to fellowship, and we're to worship. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen? God's good. He will give you strength. Just get to work. Know that he is with you, and don't fear. And that's what they did. And that's what they did. Good stuff. I ask the worship team to come up and lead us in the last song as we do. I'm just going to pray. Father God, Lord, you are our God. You are the Lord Almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, and yet you love us for who we are. You love us for what we do. And though we fall short time and time again, you pick us up. I want to pray for our church, for our people here now, Lord. I pray for those who are sharing right in this moment, Lord. Pray for their hearts. Reveal to them, Lord, the work that you want them to do. What is it that you want them to do, Lord? Lay it on their hearts. Convict them, Father. Let them know that you are with them. There might be a a sense of fear in making that decision, Lord. Help them to understand there is no need to fear, for you are with them. Whose heart are you convicting today, Lord? Whose heart are are you speaking to now, Lord? Speak to them loud and clear. We have been designed, created for his purpose. May we always seek to put your purpose first in our lives, Lord. And may we see your kingdom grow. Give us the strength, Father, so we can do your work. For we know that you are with us. We have nothing to fear. In Jesus' name, amen.